Bible's open there at Jude verses 11 to 16, verses 11 to 16, thinking this morning, really summing up the, the message of Jude in these verses, beware of impostors, be assured of judgment. <clears throat> beware of impostors, be assured of judgment. There are all kinds of reasons why Christians might get discouraged sometimes. If anyone ever tries to tell you that Christians don't get discouraged or shouldn't get discouraged, feel free to ignore them. Or perhaps even better, direct them to the book of Psalms, where we see discouragement, we see sorrow in the psalmist and pleading and crying out to God so often. Even the Lord Jesus, as he prepared to go to the cross and suffer and die under the wrath of God for our sins, Jesus was certainly sorrowful. He said to his disciples, my soul is sorrowful or weighed down to the point of death. More deeply sorrowful perhaps than any of us will ever be. Christians may well and do get discouraged. Perhaps by the thought of our own lingering sins. Maybe just tiredness in the course of service to God and the church. Maybe loneliness, illness. Just the general busyness and struggles of life. Another reason that Christians could be discouraged is because oftentimes it seems as though evil is winning. Indeed, that's often the reason, as, as we've seen already even in our service today, it's often the reason for frustration and discouragement in the Psalms. They, they cry out to God in a sense that evil men and evildoers are, are in the ascendancy around them. Psalm 12, verse 8, On every side the wicked prowl, while vileness is exalted, among the children of man. And so there are many reasons Christians could be discouraged. But perhaps one reason is the sense that we're not winning. That evil and sinfulness seem to be winning. Well part of the reason that Jude wrote his letter is to reassure us. And to remind us that whatever it might look like. Sin and sinners will not win in the end. As we've been considering over recent weeks, Jude wrote this little letter to warn his readers about the presence of false teachers. And as we saw last week, he describes how these false teachers and those who follow them will face judgment. Uh, And he continues with that theme in this next section, verses 11 to 16. Uh, And to hammer home this point about the the judgment they will face, uh, Jude gives us very memorable descriptions, very vivid pictures Of these various people who will face judgment and what they are like. And as Christians we also battle each day with our own temptations to believe falsehood. It's not blaring at us when we perhaps turn on the TV or when we're just alone with our thoughts. But the temptations can be there. Subtle little temptations to in some measure or other reject God's authority in our lives. To indulge some particular sin. To live for ourselves. And so Jude's warning here about imposters in the church and what they will look like. They can be timely warnings for us. And encouragements for us to check our own hearts. But I want you to see today also friends that Jude's words can encourage us. They remind us that in the end evil and sin will not win. Let's think first of all today, you have the outline of the sermon in the bulletin to follow along, but uh, let's think first of all about dramatic descriptions, dramatic descriptions 
of these imposters. Because in verses 11 to 13, Jude just piles up description after description of these people who are in the church and a threat to the church. Uh, And to try and help us get a handle on them, uh, and there are a lot of different descriptions to make our way through, we'll try to move through them as clearly and quickly as we can. But to try and help us remember them, I've grouped them under three categories. And so, first of all, Jude describes restless rebels. Restless rebels, verse 11. Verse 11, he says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So Jude says these imposters are like three different people or groups of people that you'll be familiar with, his readers will be familiar with, from the Old Testament. People who seemed like they belonged amongst God's people, but who turned out to be rebels. Mentions Cain, first of all, there in verse 11. And you remember the story of Cain, of course, sadly, the the first murderer, he murdered his brother Abel. But remember what happened before Cain lifted a hand against his brother Abel. Both of them had come to worship God. Abel came and worshipped in the ways that God commanded. He brought the right kind of sacrifice. He had the right kind of heart attitude, which was equally as important. Cain came without the right kind of sacrifice, the wrong kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice that had cost him nothing, and with the wrong kind of attitude in his heart. And so Genesis 4, 5 says, Cain, for Cain and for his offering, the Lord had no regard. And Cain refused to approach God in the way that God had commanded. And then he looked at his brother Abel, who had worshipped in the way God commanded, and he hated him. And he envied him. And Cain's heart became restless and rebellious. And Judah is saying that these people, these imposters of a heart just like Cain's. Restless, rebellious, out to suit themselves. And other people will get hurt along the way. And these people won't be one bit bothered if they do. It says as well, they've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Uh, Balaam is a strange character in the Old Testament, but essentially Balaam was a false prophet. You can read about him in Numbers chapter 22. Balaam went around offering to prophesy for you, to give you a a favourable prophecy or maybe to curse your enemies. But it would cost you some money. That was how Balaam made his money. You think, how do people fall for that? Well, turn on some of the so-called Christian at TV channels today and you'll see people still falling for that. People who are just motivated to say what they say to get money. But anyway, that's what Balaam did. And Numbers 22 tells us how the king of Moab hired Balaam to curse the Israelites for him. But God keeps putting a blessing in the mouth of Balaam. Three times Balaam tries to curse Israel and God keeps overruling and all Balaam can speak is a blessing for Israel. And so as a fallback option, instead, Balaam recommends to the king of Moab that he sends some of the most beautiful Moabite women into the camp of the Israelites to lead the men astray, to lead them into sexual sin and idolatry. And that's exactly what happened. And Numbers 25 tells us that God brought a terrible judgment upon Israel on that occasion. 
because they had been led into sin by Balaam's error. And so perhaps what Judah is saying is that like Balaam, these imposters in his day are just out to make money. And they will lead people into all kinds of sins in the process. And then he says as well that the imposters are like those who perished in Korah's rebellion. And we read about Korah's rebellion earlier in Numbers 16. Korah and those with him, a huge number, 250 leaders of Israel. They essentially challenge the leadership of Moses and Aaron. They say, you're no better than the rest of us. Why should you be in charge of the Israelites? We would do just as good a job as you. And they try to raise up a rebellion against the men that God himself had appointed to lead the nation, Moses and Aaron. And God brings that severe judgment that we read about. The ground swallowed up Korah and his followers and their families and fire came down upon the rest of them. And so Judas is saying here that uh, these people that he's he's warning uh, the people about in his own day, again, they're like that. They're restless. They're rebellious. They're not willing to accept the commandments and the structures that God has put in place for the church. And eventually, all of these restless rebels, they will face God's judgment. So that's the, the first group of descriptions of these people in verse 11. They're restless rebels. But in verse 12, we see also that they are shameless shepherds. They are shameless shepherds. Uh, if you look at verse 12, it says, They are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Or uh, some of the earlier versions of the ESV, they have blemishes at your love feasts. Or some of your translations will have spots at your love feasts. Uh, I think hidden reefs is a good translation. Um, What he's saying here, he's talking about what was known as the love feasts of the early Christian church. Uh, What we have described for us several times, Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 11, is that the early church, they would meet together in people's homes. They didn't have what we would call today, uh, you know, a church building, a church hall or a meeting house. And so they met in homes. And they would enjoy food together and they would share uh, prayer together. And after their meal, they would observe the Lord's Supper. And that tells us something, by the way, about the close fellowship of the church in those days and the unity that they enjoyed, that they were in and out of each other's homes, that they shared meals together and so on. But Jude warns them that right in the heart of that, in in the setting that was probably most precious to the early church, There are imposters, hidden reefs. Imagine a ship sailing peacefully along across the waters, almost about to reach the port. And then it strikes a reef, a hidden rock that the sailors didn't see. And that rock that was unseen under the perfectly still clear waters, it it breaks up the ship, it pierces the ship, it does potentially fatal damage to the ship. Jude says that's these imposters, these blemishes in your love feasts. They're in amongst you. Doesn't look like there's any harm, there's any danger. But they get chatting to people and they begin sharing their ideas and their ambitions. And before you know it, people have been led astray and they're in danger of making shipwreck of their faith altogether. 
And he says also in verse 12 that they feast with you without fear or without shame. Shepherds feeding themselves. We thought a lot earlier this year about that shepherd imagery of church leaders as we prepared for our election of elders. Peter says, 1 Peter 5 verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's a command to the elders of the church. And he says, not for shameful gain. In other words, those who are in positions of church leadership, they are in a a position of trust and they are accountable to God. We, include myself, we are accountable to God for how we conduct ourselves and what we say and what we do. And it is a despicable, disgraceful thing for someone in leadership of a church to use that position for their own shameful gain, whether that be financial gain or gaining a platform for themselves or whatever it may be. Jude says that's what these imposters are doing. They are shameless or shameful, depending on how you look at it. Shepherds, false shepherds. Then in the second half of verse 12 and on into verse 13, uh, there are several more descriptions. And really these descriptions, you could say, they're about the fact that these people are all promise and no delivery. They are all promise and no delivery. You scan your eye over verses 12 to 13. He says they are waterless clouds. They are fruitless trees in late autumn. Verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea casting up foam. And they are wandering stars. And pretty much all those pictures, friends, they they get to the point that these false teachers are all promised. They, They promise the earth and they don't deliver. Imagine living in the hot climate of the Middle East. A farmer in that climate waits days and days, if not weeks and weeks, hoping and praying for rain. Maybe it's the opposite for our farmers. We're hoping and praying for weeks and weeks for a dry day. But in the Middle East, it's the opposite. They they want the rain clouds to come. Well, imagine one day the clouds roll in and the farmer's getting his hopes up at last. Some rain for my crops. Then the clouds just roll on by and no rain comes. Jude says that's these imposters. They look like they'll deliver for you, but they won't. He says they're like fruitless trees in late autumn. You, you wait and you wait and you wait thinking, well, maybe the fruit will come right at the end of the season, but it doesn't. And then you look a little closer and you see that actually the tree's uprooted. And so he says it's like they're doubly dead. They are fruitless and they are rootless. In fact, instead of producing fruit, uh, Jude's third description in this little burst, he says they are wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. They don't produce fruit, they produce pollution. When Han and I lived up north, the, the beach closest to us, about 10 minutes from the house, uh, we loved to walk on it, but Sadly, quite often it it tended to produce very foamy waves. Don't know what it was about the position of this beach. But every few weeks we would arrive on this beach and it would be covered in trash and debris and sadly quite often dead animals for some reason. Uh, And the beach, just these huge, big, foamy, dirty waves would cover the beach in filth. And Jude says that's the impact that these people have on the church. They, They don't bring... Anything good. They just bring what pollutes and what destroys and what does harm. 
Then he says they're like wandering stars. Some commentators suggest that Jude is actually talking about wandering planets here. Uh, The word comes from the same Greek word for planets. Uh, And again, if you think about this in the ancient world, people could use the stars to navigate. If you knew which stars were which, you could go in in whatever direction you wanted because the stars don't move. They, They could guide you where you need to go. But the planets move. From our, from our vantage point. Uh, and so if you follow the position of a planet, you'll get lost because the planets are always moving. And again, Jude says that's these imposters. They, they look like bright, starry figures that you can trust, but they will lead you astray. So Jude couldn't be much clearer, could he, about the kinds of threats that these imposters pose to the church. Restless rebels, shameful shepherds, all promise, no delivery. Rather than providing blessing for the church, they pollute the church and they lead people astray. And again, knowing as we do that such people can and do and have infiltrated uh, the the visible church on earth today. And the, the sort of same kinds of harmful impacts that Jude describes here, we've seen those kinds of impacts perhaps around us. That could discourage us. We could think, well, if even people who claim to be Christians are going to cause problems for us, well, how are we going to cope? How do we keep going? But notice what Jude says about them in verse 11. Woe to them. Woe to them. That's very strong language to... To pronounce woe on someone in scripture means they are under the most severe judgment of God you can imagine. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus himself pronounces seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees in his day. And who were they exactly? They were a lot like what Jude describes here. They were religious teachers, religious leaders, respected, educated, but they were imposters. Leading people astray. And similarly Jude pronounces woes on these imposters. He says in verse 13. The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them forever. Uh, Elsewhere in the letter as well he talks about darkness and fire awaiting these people. It's not to say that it will be literally darkness and fire that sinners experience when they are judged by God. But these are symbols. These are pictures for us, friends, of the judgment that sinners will face. Darkness depicting isolation and fear. Fire depicting destruction and torture. Eternal destruction and torture. And so we have these dramatic descriptions of these imposters. But building upon that then, and building on what we've just said, Jude then moves on to describe the certain judgment of these imposters in verses 14 to 16. The certain judgment of these imposters. Look at verse 14. It was also about these, he says, these false teachers, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. To execute judgment on all. Interesting verse. Maybe you're wondering, where in my Bible have I missed Enoch's prophecy? 
If you're thinking, I've never noticed Enoch prophesying anywhere in Genesis or any other part of the Bible. Well, Enoch never does say this in Genesis or anywhere else in the Scriptures. Jude is not quoting the Old Testament here. He's actually quoting, most likely, from a book called First Enoch that was very popular amongst Jews and some Christians in Jude's day. Not written, I should say, by the Enoch of Scripture. You remember we thought about Enoch earlier this year, again, when we were studying Genesis. And we saw how that, that man Enoch, he, he walked with God, we're told, in Genesis chapter 5. He's a very godly man, very close relationship with his God. And one day God simply took Enoch home to heaven. Enoch did not experience physical death. And perhaps because of that, and because he was the seventh from Adam, uh, and the Jews put a lot of significance in the number seven, uh, and that combined with the fact that Enoch did not die, he perhaps became quite an intriguing figure to the Jews. And often in the ancient world, you would find that books were written uh, in the name of famous people, people that others found fascinating, sort of celebrities, if you like. Uh, and so books would be written called First Enoch, or uh, you have other books like the Gospel of Thomas and so forth, and they, they invoke famous names, even if they're written by other people. Some of what was written in the book of First Enoch is true. A lot of what was written in it is not true. But we don't need to concern ourselves too much with the fact that Jude quotes from a book that's not in the Bible. Uh, Paul did that in Acts 17 when he was preaching at Mars Hill. Uh, And again in the book of Titus chapter 1, Paul quotes from other writers. It doesn't mean that Jude or Paul thought that those books or those people were divinely inspired the way the Bible is. But since the Holy Spirit led Jude to include this quote from 1st Enoch... We know that this part of First Enoch at least is true, even if none of the rest of it is. So I hope that makes sense. This, this quote, Jude, is only choosing it, led by the Holy Spirit, because it's true. Here's the point. Why does Jude quote from Enoch at all, this man who lived so long ago? Well, it's because this particular quote, friends, emphasizes to us How certain is the judgment of God? That's the point. Don't get too distracted in your minds about getting your hands on a copy of 1st Enoch. (laughs) It's because what he says here in 1st Enoch points to the certainty of the judgment of God. Look at the quote, verse 14. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. Now, if Enoch said this all those hundreds and thousands of years ago, then it is certainly going to happen because God's messengers have, have continued to say the same thing ever since. That's one of the reasons we don't need to worry about Jude lifting this quote. It's a quote that fits perfectly with the message of the rest of the scriptures. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, for example. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. See the similar language there to what Jude uses here. Isaiah 66 verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire 
and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Again, very similar. Consider the words of Jesus. We read them last week. Matthew 13, verse 41. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. So whether it's Enoch, only the seventh, in the gener- seventh generation from Adam, whether it's the law, whether it's the prophets, whether it's Jesus himself, friends, the message of the scriptures is the same. Jesus is coming with all his angels to judge. And notice two words in verse 15 from this quote that just keep being repeated. Verse 15. He is coming to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. The word all and the word ungodly just keep being repeated by Jude. All ungodliness. All impostors. All rebels. Whether they be presidents, prime ministers or paupers. Whether they be leaders of democracies or leaders of dictatorships. Whether they be preachers. Whether their sins are considered small in the world's eyes or huge in the world's eyes. Whether it be words or deeds or even thoughts. All the ungodliness of the world will be judged, Jude says. Ungodliness is living as though you are not answerable to God. Ungodliness is living as though the commands of God don't apply to you. And Jude gives us some examples of how that might show itself in verse 16. He says these kinds of people are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. Now grumbling is always a sin. We shouldn't grumble about anything as hard as that is for us sometimes. But the particular type of grumbling that uh, Jude is talking about here is the grumbling of Korah and the rebels in the wilderness that we read about earlier. Grumbling that is really intended to disrespect the authority of God and get our own way. He says they follow their own sinful desires. As we thought last week in Jude, that often includes in particular sexual desires. But he really covers all kinds of things. These people just follow their desires. They don't stop to think, is this a good desire? Is this an ungodly desire? They just go ahead and do it. He says in verse 16, they are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Again, the sense is there that perhaps these people, they, they are just, do, they are just uh, modeling themselves as teachers in the church for financial gain. They're in it for themselves. They're in it to build a platform or a reputation for their own name. But the point is, friends, that certain judgment awaits these people. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. The, the tense actually in the original quote is past tense. And this happens sometimes in the Bible. It describes things that are still to come as though they've already happened. And that's to emphasize to us the certainty that they will happen. 
And so we've thought about the dramatic descriptions of these imposters and the certain judgment that awaits these imposters. And just as we close, a couple of points of application for us, because you might be thinking, well, Jude wrote these things back then. Uh, What about us today? We've already thought about the, the fact that such imposters still exist in the church today. And so just two points of application as we close. First of all, friends, we should be on guard against false teachers. We should be on guard against false teachers. The saying goes that not all that glitters is gold. And as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, we have to be constantly on guard against those who would promise much and deliver little. And some of you will perhaps be able to think of names of those who sort of made it what you might call Christian famous. Uh, Authors, preachers, they maybe had some great book or they can preach a great series of sermons. They can draw huge crowds. But sadly, eventually, allegations of one sort or another came to light. Immoral behaviour behind the scenes, marital unfaithfulness, bullying staff, greedy for gain. Maybe excuses were made for some of the things they taught, which didn't seem to fit altogether with God's word. But people said, well, yes, but look how many people are getting saved or look how successful they've been. Surely God is blessing that, that ministry. We're not to be easily taken in by the new and the novel. Instead, we're to be like the noble Bereans in Acts chapter 17. A group of people were told that when Paul first preached the gospel to them, Acts 17, 11 says, They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. These people had the apostle Paul preaching to them. And they still were checking what he said against what the rest of God's word said. We should have that same desire, friends. We should be on guard against falsehood. It's one of the responsibilities of your pastors and elders in particular to guard the church from such falsehood. But on an individual level, how is your spiritual diet? Are you drinking in truth or lies? Whose voice or voices are you listening to most often on a daily or weekly basis? Voices of the world, voices of some impressive celebrity, or the voice of God? Are you allowing falsehood to gain a foothold in your thinking or in your heart? This sin isn't so bad. I can repent of it later anyway. It's nothing compared to what some people do. Okay, this preacher isn't part of a respected Bible-believing church. He's a bit of a lone ranger, but... He's such a gifted speaker. Look at the number of people listening to him. Listening to him a few times a week will do me rather than getting involved in a local church. We need to be on guard against false teachers and any influence they might gain in the church. But we also need to be on guard for the sake of our own hearts. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We need to plead daily for the help of the Holy Spirit to resist the most subtle of temptations. Temptations to excuse our sin. Temptations to resist the authorities, the spiritual authorities that God has put upon us. And we need to watch out for those hidden reefs. Those shameless shepherds 
who try to get in and disrupt in the local church. Be on guard against falsehood. But then as we close, friends, also be encouraged for the future. Be encouraged for the future. The fact that the day of judgment is coming is, of course, the most solemn truth we could possibly consider. Jesus will come down from heaven. He will send out his angels across the whole earth. He will gather all men and women and children from all times and places. And he will judge. And as Christians, we need to warn people about this. No matter how much they might scoff at us. They might say, you really? You believe in heaven and hell. You're an educated person. You're, a, you're, you're doing well in life. You're, you still believe this kind of stuff in the year 2022. No matter how much they scoff, we have to tell them the truth. It's an act of love to tell them the truth. To warn them that they are in danger. And plead with them to repent before it's too late. Just as an aside, friends, do we do that? Are we in prayer for unbelieving neighbours and loved ones? Whoever else we spend time with on a regular basis. And praying that God would give us opportunities to speak. and To call them to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. A time will come when it will be too late. But the coming day of judgment is also a reason for encouragement. At least it is for those of us who do truly love the Lord Jesus Christ. As we considered at the beginning, we live in a world where sin seems to be winning. And we can be discouraged by that. And we might lose heart from that sometimes. We might lose heart at the the seeming drop-off in those who are even committed to the local church now, particularly post-COVID. We live in a nation that is not only excusing ungodliness, but in many ways encouraging it in its most perverted forms, as we thought last week. And as Christians remain to feel small and silly and old-fashioned, that our beliefs are irrelevant or even dangerous. Some of you, I know, are, are facing some of those sorts of pressures in your workplace or amongst your family members or maybe boys and girls for you at school. But Christian, be encouraged. Be encouraged. The Lord comes, we read, with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment. And that will be it. That will be the end of it, of all the ungodliness and the pressure and the persecution and the false teaching. And I want you to be clear in your minds about what will happen on Judgment Day. Because we needn't think that we will stand there waiting our turn in amongst all the unbelievers. And that Jesus will be reading out a list of everybody's sins, hour after hour. And eventually it will be our turn to hear all the awful things we've done for all of our lives. Before Jesus then says, it's actually okay, I've forgiven you. No, scripture is very clear. Jesus will instantly separate the sheep from the goats. Those who are truly his people, those from those who are not his people. And those who are truly Jesus' people will be immediately taken to be with him. To enjoy his gracious, loving presence, his glorious presence forever. Whilst the scoffers and the sexually immoral and the imposters And the pagans and the ungodly will be immediately separated from the loving presence of Christ forever. And they will begin to experience that woe and that curse that Jude warns of here. They will be consigned to gloomy darkness and fire 
forever. And then the world will be changed. And there will be no more sin or deception. No imposters. No more death. Not even another little ache in your neck. We will be resurrected. We will be together. We will be with Christ in a world made new forever. Behold, Jude says, the Lord comes. That may be a warning to you today if you do not yet know Christ. But if you do know him today, let it encourage you. Let it motivate us, friends, in our evangelism. Let it stiffen our resolve. Let it keep us safe from the falsehoods and deceptions of imposters. Are you discouraged today by the wicked world we live in? Don't be discouraged. Jesus Christ says, behold, I am coming soon. Amen.